Schlumberger. If I haven't met you yet, I'm part of the teaching team here, and I'm excited to be part of this union series. If you were not here with us last week, uh, Cody kicked it off for us. It's a series about the Song of Solomon, and uh, it'll, I'm going to say something that will sound like what I said when we were in Job a couple of months ago. Um, listen, not every church in America is opening up their Bibles on a Sunday morning and getting into the books of Job and Song of Solomon. Um, I appreciate that about this church. If you are new here or are unfamiliar, there's a reading plan that you can jump in at any time in the year and join us in. That reading plan is taking us through the Bible. And so this series, like many of our series, will mirror what's happening in your personal reading time. And it's, I just hope it stirs the pot, really. That's my goal at the end of this um, time together that you leave here. I, I've been increasingly convinced that good teaching leaves you with more questions than answers. And so I hope you leave here with some good questions for you to go work out um, with fear and trembling there with the Lord. Um, because of the nature of this book, exactly like she just prayed, I'm going to have a couple of disclaimers for you. The first one is uh, if you're single and you're here with us this morning, first of all, you're utterly welcome. We are not looking over you or around you as we tackle this book. We see you. Um, I say all the time, I don't think during a message the loudest voice in the room is the one coming through the microphone. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you about whatever he wants to during this time. Uh, but secondly, this, this uh, uh, still with the singles, this is not just, although we are going to tackle marital sexual intimacy today, it's not just a book about that. It's also an allegory about the relationship between God and us. So just, I just want to, I want you to feel welcome here. That's why you're first in my disclaimers list. Okay, second, if you are unhappily married, I don't, want you, I don't want you to think that we think that a 30-minute message is going to be all you need. Now you're on your way, and it'll be great, and I got an acronym for you, and like, it's, that's, we don't think that's how these things get tackled, but as a church, we're not afraid of the hard things that are happening in your personal life, and so you'll see an email behind me. If you want to email that um, request at golivelive.com, um, you'll receive prayer, pastoral care, They'll help you find a professional counselor. North Star will even help you pay for a professional counselor. Like your marriage and what's happening in your life is important to us. And this may start a conversation with you about it, but don't, I just don't want you to think that we think that this message is a silver bullet. It's not. But we do want you to feel hope. I do hope you feel hope. My third disclaimer is not a shock, but I am a female. And um, I think that some messages up here can be delivered by a male, female, doesn't really matter. We're talking about the plagues of Exodus or the crucifixion of Jesus and whether one of our male staff or I'm sharing it or Katie or somebody sharing it, it doesn't really matter our gender. But this particular subject matter, I'm quite delighted that we are a church that's going to hear from both female and male voices in this. Um, for a long, long time, that's not how it works. And women have been hearing messages about Song of Solomon from a male perspective. And so if 50% of you feel like you don't understand what I'm saying, stay tuned. In two weeks, it's your turn. But um, I, 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 do like, um, I do like that. Okay, uh, fourth, <laughs> I was thinking on the way here. If you're uncomfortable sitting there listening to me talk about marriage and sex, just think for a second how it feels to be me standing here <laughs> talking to you about marriage and sex. Let that comfort you a little bit if you're feeling uncomfortable. But I'm actually really grateful that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the world is talking to us about this. Like, the church has got to talk about it. We've got to think, what does our Bible tell us? Not what 
And how, what does our doctor tell us, our mom tell us, our neighbor tell us, Oprah tell us, Cosmo tell us, and Netflix tell us? Like, what does my Bible tell me about this thing? And, and so many people report about having gotten wrong messages about intimacy from the church. It is my deep desire that through these weeks you get biblically based, God-honoring, truthful messages about the subject from your church. Um, and I, I'll just add a little PS to that. Just a warning. There are some Christian influencers out there right now who have really wrong messaging about sexuality and sex, and, and sex within marriage, and they're pumping it out as fast as they can put a podcast out. And I just, whenever you get information from anyone, including this morning, open up your Bibles and say, what did my Bible say about that? Like, what, like, let's make sure, don't just believe someone because of their platform or because of, just open up your Bibles. This is a gift God gave us and he has plenty to say about it. So anyway, that's my PS. Last disclaimer, this is a purposely lopsided message. This is not a marriage talk. If this was a marriage talk, one would advertise it that way. And two, we would be talking about communication and conflict resolution and child rearing and all the things you talk about in marriage. This is not a message about marriage. This is a message about intimacy, relational, emotional, sexual. This is a message about intimacy. So buckle up. I'm going to give you plenty of things to talk about on the way home, I think. <laughs> uh, I do want to reference what Cody said last week. I think it was a really good point, so I just want to say it again. Some people take this book and they think, well, this book is all about God and it has nothing to do about sexuality. Well, I mean, just read it. That doesn't make any sense. And some people say, well, this book is only about sexual intimacy. It has nothing to do with God. That doesn't make any sense. If you read it, you can see very clearly the, the ways in which he's telling us, in the same way that these lovers are pursuing one another, I am after you. I am coming for you. I want intimacy with you. And so we're going to try to read it with both of those lenses today. But the heart, at the heart of intimacy is, is uh, pursuit. So we're going to read chapters 3, 4, and 5 today and talk a little bit about this idea of pursuit. And the first idea I want to say is that pursuit is intentional. It has a goal. It, in this case, it's a shared goal between two people, and their goal is connection and oneness and relationship. In the second chapter of Song of Solomon, we read this verse together. It says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards are vineyards that are in bloom. And I was, um, it was 19 years ago, I was in a Bible study with some staff friends. So I'm on staff with Back to Back Ministries, and we were studying the biblical books of poetry. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastics, Song of Solomon. And we, one day we were in this second chapter of Song of Solomon, and we were reading this verse, and we were learning about that a vineyard in bloom is, is a reference to um, the sexual intimacy that happens between a husband and a wife, and the foxes are the things that come in and try to disrupt that sexual intimacy and oneness, and we began to brainstorm the kind of foxes that come into gardens and vineyards when they're blooming, and we, we came up with a list that sounded like body image, need to control, busyness and fatigue, perceived prohibitions, expectations, anger, foxes of resentment, disappointment, hurt, fear, anxiety, guilt, shame. All these foxes can come into our vineyards and try to ruin them while they're in bloom. And I remember telling my girlfriends in that moment, like, are we supposed to tell our husbands what our foxes are? Because I kind of thought the good Christian thing to do was to put my best foot forward. And if I had a fox to not, to purposely not show my husband. And I said, I wonder what would happen if I told him what my foxes were. 
So that night I said to Todd, like, so what, what would you do if I told you what my foxes were? I read him this verse. He's like, well, I'd get out of my gun and shoot him because I'm interested in the vineyard. <laughs> I'm interested in that vineyard being in bloom, you know? And so, so we had a conversation that night, a vulnerable conversation about the foxes that come into both of our vineyards. And we decided we were going to be intentional about getting rid of those foxes, of, of commissioning together towards that end. And so the easiest fox that felt like to get rid of was the busyness and fatigue. That felt like the, like the least loaded one to get going on first. And at this point, I had nine children in my family. And so uh, when I saw him come in, I was thinking to myself, like, like, what can you do for me right now? Because we were co-leading a ministry and co-managing our house and co-parenting our household. And there wasn't a ton of time for vineyards blooming. And so we made a decision that night that we were going to set aside two hours a day, that we were going to just just not wear any other hat besides man and woman. We were not going to co-manage and co-work and co-parent. We were going to just just be together. And we're kind of night owls, so we thought like 9 to 11 we would do that. And I can remember in the very beginning of that stage, I would get myself into the room physically, but I wasn't there mentally. Because I, I now know, I mean, researchers have known this for a long time, but I now know that men's brains in general can fully focus on one thing. They get full, they get, that, like that's amazing that their brains do that. I think sometimes that seems like a better way for a brain to be. Like wherever they are, it has their full attention. This is why sometimes he might be at work not wondering, I wonder what she's doing at home. I'm going to call her right now and see how she's doing. Like he's, he's at work. Like this is what he's, he's focused on that thing. And so that's what he's thinking about. And later he's focused on something else, whatever. Meanwhile, women's brains, a French researcher has coined the term mental load. We have a, women have a mental load. We function like this giant dashboard, right? And in our dashboard, we got like kids have dials and parents have dials and friends have dials and neighbors have dials and bodies. Have, I mean, all kinds of things have dials. And so I was getting in that room physically, but my brain was like all lit up with all my other dashboard. And we began to have the conversation about that. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we, were, uh, we went away for the weekend. We were walking and talking, and then we were quiet for a little bit, and then out, out of the blue to him, I said something about how I'm kind of worried about Emma. And he's like, who's Emma? I'm like, our firstborn child. Like, you know, like, like, like in that moment, his screensaver was like, on me. Like, he was like not thinking about like, oh yeah, we have a kid. Like, meanwhile, my, my dashboard is like all lit up all the time, right? So we started to have to have language between the two of us about what it would look like for me to shut down those windows starting after dinner. So by the time I physically got in the room, I was also also present with him emotionally and in all the other kinds of ways. And in the beginning, it was really confusing to my household. Like, I can remember like almost week one, my, my first grader knocked on the door and he was like, what do you mean I can't talk to mom? I haven't finished my math homework. I need her. And Todd said through the crack in the door, you could go to first grade again next year. I don't care, you know. <laughs> And then we were foster parenting teenage girls in this season. And so, you know, one of them would knock on the door like, oh, my gosh, I need her right now. I just broke up with my boyfriend. I have to talk to her right now. I'm so sad. And he was like, hey, I'm positive you'll still be sad in the morning. She'll be there, you know. <laughs> it was confusing to our household why, oh, my gosh, you mean for a little bit of time, the priority, the principal relationship gets the priority of time. And it took us, I, and I'm just confessing to you. In the beginning, I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, we are ruining our children. Like, what is going to happen if they feel like they can't have access to us for a little bit? But, and what's going to happen to my household when they realize we're not coming out unless somebody's bleeding, you know? But what I can tell you is that 
the, the secure, 19 years later, the security that my children feel that when they, when they see Todd and I have tension, which we do, we're normal people with sinful natures that roar sometimes. When that sinful nature hits against each other and they see conflict, they don't worry about it because they know, oh, they're going to be together later tonight and get it all worked out. And I think uh, the other thing that I can testify to you is that I, I will, I'm not going to ever look at him and be like, I don't even know you anymore. How'd you get here? Who are you? I know exactly who he is. I spent two hours with him last night. And I don't want you to hear that as a prescription. I want you to hear it as a principle, that pursuit is intentional and that we needed to have time where we could cultivate both our emotional intimacy, which we found out led to better physical intimacy, because making space for the intention of, of, and the pursuit of connection leads to like more connecting. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. It's a call to shared faithfulness. And faithfulness, by the way, is more than just not having sexual relations with someone outside your marriage. We think that's the only thing that you, if, if, if you're called unfaithful, that means that you had sex with someone other than your spouse. No, faithfulness is about being present. You're not present, you're being unfaithful. Faithfulness is about presence. It's about demonstrating love, affection, devotion, honor, loyalty, encouragement. This is what it means to be faithful to the commitment you made to your spouse. Just in the same way, you can call yourself a Christ follower, but not actually be following him anywhere. Right? You can be married, but not actually be present. Secondly, pursuit is relentless. We read in the third chapter, all night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but I didn't find him. I will get up now and go about the city through the streets and squares. I'll search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but I didn't find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found the one my heart loves, and I held him, and I wouldn't let him go. First, like, let's look in those verbs. She loved him, she searched for him, she found him, she held him, and she wouldn't let go. Those are great directives for intimacy. And she, she wanted him, that first line, all night long on my bed, that word for bed in Hebrew is not the same word they use in the first chapter, which could also be translated as couch. This is overtly the love bed. We see it four other times in scripture. We see it in Ezekiel 23 and Genesis 49, Numbers 31. It's all referencing a bed where sexual relations happens. It's the love bed. She was on her love bed and she was looking for him. She was on her way. She wanted him and was searching relentlessly for him. And like I said at the beginning, this good messages end up stirring questions in us. As I was preparing this message, I was asking myself, am I in relentless pursuit of him? And him can be my, my heavenly father and my husband. Like, am I, am, I pers am I pursuing? Like, pursuing, we just said, it's intentional, but it's also relentless. It never stops. She calls him the one I love four times. She longed for him. And it isn't just about sex. It was about intimacy and connection. One of our daughters was a competitive gymnast, so I don't know if any of you have had a child in a sport that's like, swimming or tennis or dance or those those crazy sports that are like hours a day every day of the entire calendar year it's like it's a very intense sport she can, did it for almost 10 years and so when you get to the higher levels of those kinds of sports your world becomes the people that are around the ecosystem of the sporting facility where your child is involved and so all the gymnastics family became part of our kind of world and those women, I was living in Mexico at the time, and those women were nice to me, 
But I was a foreigner, so I was kind of a little bit outside of their circles. And there was another woman they kind of pushed outside of their circles because she was a model in our city and her image was on a bunch of the billboards. And so we don't always know what to do with beautiful women and we push them sometimes out. So this woman and I found each other on the outskirts and we became friends and we cheered on each other's kids and hung out at competitions. And one night my husband came home from picking up my daughter from gymnastics and he just said to me, I don't know how to say this to you, but your friend makes me uncomfortable. I think she's flirting with me. I was like, she's definitely not flirting with you. Don't worry. <laughs> to which he was mildly offended. I thought that wasn't even a possibility, but like, he's, he's like, she makes me uncomfortable. I said, no, no, she's not flirting with you. That's just who she is. Then a few weeks later, um, he came home, and it was Valentine's Day, and he said, hey, she just gave me a Valentine. Like, does this get your attention yet? She gave me a Valentine. And I said, well, in Spanish, we call Valentine's Day the day of friendship and love. And I said, I think she's just your friend. And, and if I had picked her up, she would have given that gift to me. Like, we're interchangeable. I don't think she sees you any differently. He's like, oh, she sees me differently. And I'm like, she does not see you differently. And then just a few days after that, he dropped off our daughter and went into a parking lot of a business, and she followed him in there, got out of the car, and told him exactly what she wanted to have happen. And suddenly, there was no wondering anymore if that's what she meant. And he got in a car and drove as fast as he could to my house, and he came into the house and told me what was going on, and all of a sudden, I, I had to just absorb what I had been really ignoring until that point, that my friend was offering herself to my husband. And so we just kind of put our faces together and prayed and talked for a minute, and he said, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, I think I should go, we should go talk to her right now. And he's like, you want to go talk to her right now? I said, I do. He's like, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I don't really have any idea, but let's go. And so we pull up to the gym, and she sees us get out of the car together. And her face was like a combination of fear and shame. And I walked up to her, and I said, oh you are such a shiny apple. And if the only thing that Todd and I exchanged was something mechanical or physical, you could definitely give me a run for my money. But do you understand that what happens between Todd and I is more than just physical? It's emotional and it's spiritual and it's relational and it's historical and it's based on a shared future and it's all these things tied into one. It's what God gave us as a bonder, a cement cement between two people it represents God and the church it's two people becoming one do you understand that what you are offering him is a counterfeit and he has has the real thing so he doesn't want a counterfeit do you understand what I'm talking about and she said I have no idea what you're saying and I realized in that moment that Jesus was going to ask me to share the gospel with a woman who just propositioned my husband which is what happened next but I told her he wrapped this powerful tool this tool that you were going to toss away so lightly, this tool that we use to create children and that gives unique knowledge and power over each other and that gives us intimate oneness and pleasure and comfort. He gave it to married people. Nothing you could possibly offer would compare. And when I think through this book as an allegory to our relationship with Christ, man, God wants all of us. And when we first come into relationship with him, 
we sense his pursuit of us. I bet if I circled us up and I said, hey, let's just tell each other the stories of how we were separated from the flock. We were the one sheep over there with the 99, and then Jesus came and got us and put us over his shoulders and brought us home, and what was that like? And you would tell us stories about how he was in pursuit of you and how you, you admired him in the beginning, and you're like, oh my gosh, you're the creator of the universe. You're the king of my heart. You are the savior of my sins. Like, you are, you are unbelievable, but then over time, we fall in love we move from admiration to love, and that goes into things like commitment and then worship. That's the exact progress we see in this book. At first, they admire each other, then they move towards love, and he is wooing her, and she is wooing him. And let's just stop there for a minute with another P.S. Sometimes when you hear these messages, it seems like one gender is the pursuer, and the other gender is the waiter around her until she gets caught. That's not what we read in this book. We're going to read here in chapter 4 where he's coming after her, but we just read in chapter 3 how she went looking for him in the middle of the night while she was on her love bed. Like, this is an exchange. It's equal. Hear that loud and clear. For me, when I think about uh, like God's pursuit of me and his demonstration of his desire to continue to woo me, his relentless nature of pursuit... I think about how sometimes people in my life make fun of me when I'm like, oh, I'm late, and there's a green light, hallelujah, praise Jesus. And they whisper things like, well, so every red light's from the devil, which, no, that's not true, because sometimes red lights keep you from accidents, right? No, I'm just kidding. Or like, like, we say like, you know, oh, we had an outdoor event, and it was supposed to rain, and now it's sunshine, praise God. And people sometimes make fun of that. So what, what rain clouds are from the devil? No, that's not what I mean. And they think we unnecessarily give him credit for good gifts he gives us. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think he gives us all kinds of things we don't even acknowledge him for. I think he's going before us and handing us things all the time. He's in pursuit of us, relentless, intentional pursuit of us. And I just want to warn us as a church, over time, our passion for pursuit can slow down. We see that in our relationship with God and in our relationship with our spouses. And the temptation to pursue wrong things can get strong. When we pursue loves that are not ours to have in our relationship with God, it leads to idolatry. It's a hunger for something other than holiness. And our relationship with marriage, it leads to unfaithfulness or adultery. And there's a man I want to tell you about. His name's Dr. Joe Beam. He does a lot of research in this area of Christian sexuality. And he did a project once uh, studying the phenomenon of um, adultery. And in a room this size, I want to just acknowledge right off the bat, I hope... I'm sorry if that triggers some of you. If you are familiar or close to a storyline like that, it's not my desire to hurt you. It's not my desire to trigger you. But if we can't talk about this in the church, where are we talking about it? And he was talking about this idea, what can happen if all of us, every last one of us has a box, and the inside of our box lives our sexuality, what we think is okay and not okay and when to have and how to have and all, all the things all live in our box. And when we get married, if our box doesn't grow, and over time, if, you know, our own little sin natures and all temptation and spiritual Achilles heel and all that, some shiny apple is temptation for us out here, and we bite that apple. And they give us an experience that's outside of the box that we chose never to grow. Then we unnecessarily uh, afford to the person the emotion that really is about what you did outside that box. And people say things like, I, I never felt that way before. And this person must be my soulmate because I, I, I can't believe how attracted I am to them and how much I want that and how much I hunger for that and I have an appetite for that. And the challenge that 
that Dr. Beam ends up making is once you get married, keep growing the box. Grow the box so if a shiny apple comes, it won't be tempting because inside of your box, you're having all these unbelievable experiences. You're exploring and expressing and intending to and pursuing relational oneness. Because God created sex to be more than mechanical. I mean, this is why he gave us things like hormones and nerves and sensory receptors and emotions so that the becoming of one flesh would be the highest form of ecstasy possible. A couple of years ago, no, like 10 plus years ago, I did a retreat here at North Star on female biblical sexuality. And in that retreat, we had a session and there was some anonymous question opportunity and the questions were all around like, like what are you allowed to do? Like, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Like, can you do this? Can you do that? And we created a, a biblical gauntlet of what our Bible tells us we are not allowed to do. Like, we're not allowed to have sex with children or animals or third parties, or we're not allowed to bring harm to one another. And we built this, stru this biblical structure, and then we put every question through the gauntlet. And if it, if it got through the gauntlet, it landed at the bottom, and the bottom says what Paul says, like, everything, it, it, if it, it might be permissible, but it might not be beneficial. So inside your own relationship, you have to decide, like, okay, we're allowed to do this, but maybe this isn't right for us for whatever reason. But it might be. And inside that box, it, and inside that discussion, boxes can grow. And honestly, the world is telling us, again, 24-7, from music and media and movies and all the places we get messaging from the world, the world is telling us that the best oneness is being experienced by young people or people at the start of their relationship. Are you kidding me? Those people don't know what they're doing. They're definitely not having the best experience. They're not using the tool the way the tool was created to be used. What happens in marital oneness is you get to know yourself better, you get to know your partner better, and your box gets bigger. It actually should be getting better as you go along. Because we now, we now know what to do with the blooming vineyard. Sexual intimacy is a tool God gave marriages, and I want you to hear your church saying this. It is, it is powerful and holy and responsive and romantic and gentle and exhilarating and nourishing and pleasing to God, and a sexless marriage is not God's design. It, it literally just it doesn't work. It's, it's, this is a holy act. And so if pursuit is intentional and it's relentless, lastly, I want you to hear that it's invitational. Pursuit is invitational. And again, that invitation is coming in both directions. Sometimes one, a woman invites the man, and sometimes the man invites the woman, but they are equal partners in this discussion and in this activity and in this pursuit. And I, I, we, Todd and I were having dinner with this couple the other day, and we didn't know them very well, and they were telling us how they met. And the guy said, well, yeah, I always say that I dated her for four years, but she only dated me for two because it took me two years to get her to say yes, you know. And he was talking about this idea that he had been invitational, 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 invitational until she accepted the invitation. We see the man in this book, Song of Solomon, issuing an invitation in the fourth chapter. It says, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon, from the tops of all those mountains, from the lion's den and the mountains of the leopards. She's from the north, and so he's saying to her, come, like, leave your family, leave your fears. That's what the lions and leopards are all about. I want you to come with me. And the Hebrew there for the word come is an invitation that is full of desire. I want you to come with me. This is a holy, this is holy, come with me. 
in my uh, in our wedding almost 30 years ago we had a big church wedding and so then all the bridesmaids walked down and the flower girls and then very dramatically they shut the doors and I had my pastor stand up and read cha Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 that says it's not good for a man to be alone but God created a helper suitable for him and then the doors flew open and then there I walked down the aisle with my dad and it was kind of dramatic which suited me perfectly at that time in my life but um I didn't even really know what that verse means at the time. I just finished a book that'll come out this winter and I was joking with my publisher, What's, what book is harder to write than a book about the devil, which is my last book about spiritual warfare? Well, it's this one. This book is about women. It was much harder to write than anything I've ever written before. And it's based on this verse. It's not good for man to be alone, but God created. The word we translate into English as helper in that passage, we see it two verses later, so Genesis 2.18 and 2.20, that word helper comes from the Hebrew word ezer, E-Z-E-R. And that word ezer is used 19 other times in our Old Testament, and in every other instance, it either means God himself or strong military help. And so the rabbis talk about how, I mean, again, Hebrew words are always like pictures, that this word could even better be translated like warrior. It's not good for man to be alone, so God created a warrior suitable for him because we're in the fight of our lives, aren't we? For our families, for the kingdom of God. Like, it's a long story. I spent like 200 pages explaining how we got to helper. But helper today in 2023 kind of sounds like assistant. It's not good for man to be alone, so God gave him a helper, like an assistant, to get him done what he's got to get done. And that has informed church politics and, and culture wars and conflict ever since. But that passage happens before the fall. This was the intelligent designer's original design. In fact, they talk about the, the word picture for the word azer is like two planks, for suitable, which is the next word. It's like two planks that like sit up against each other. And the idea is if one piece of wood falls, the other one's going to fall too. It's this equal uh, alignment of two warriors coming together. And this this is the picture I want us to paint for marriage in case anybody ever painted a different picture for you. This is how God literally made us. Not good for us to be alone. That is not a, that is not a discussion or condemnation on the call to celibacy or singleness. This is just talking about Genesis chapter 2. Not good for a man to be alone. God created a warrior, a commissioner, a co-laborer, suitable up against his wood, his like, right, like just like the triangle. So that nobody would fall. And I I just want to say this morning, like haphazard marriages, they're not they're not gonna cut it. They're not gonna cut it today. The pressure is too great, they will literally break. We have so much against us these days. We need both people to show up. We're not we don't need to bench half the team. We need half the whole both parties to show up. And we need them to be intentional and invitational and relentless because he gave us this gift together this he understood this war we're going to be in so this gift this tool he gave us is so that we could come together and recharge and reconnect and relieve and understand and experience oneness so we can be in that battle together god modeled this for us in his relationship with us he is invitational and relational and intentional and, and now we get to put on display for a world that doesn't know what to do with a marriage like that. And we get to explain that we got the model from our Bibles because this is how God actually made it to be. And so as we go into a time of prayer, I just, I just want to say again at the end what I said at the beginning. I mean, 
one message isn't going to do anything but stir the pot. That's really what I hoped this morning would happen, that you would get your pot all stirred up, that you would have questions that would surface in your mind for you to talk about with a trusted friend or professional counselor or your spouse or Jesus himself. Like, get your questions answered. This is a conversation we need to be having among Christian communities. And ask it in every direction. Ask, Lord, how, how are you pursuing me and how have I not been paying attention and how am I pursuing you and where do I need to be more intentional and how am I pursuing my spouse and where do, and where do I need to, like, ask it in every direction. Ask about how you're modeling that for your children and how you're supporting your friends in that and ask about how you're doing it in your own household. Like, the desire, scripture should, it just aligns us. That's probably the best word for it. I just want us to be aligned biblically and then ask the Holy Spirit to do all the good gifts he knows how to do. He can comfort you, encourage you, he can challenge you, he can convict you, he can give you gifts, he does all kinds of things. We're gonna pray right now and ask him to do this kind of holy work in us and then bear fruit from us because the work he's doing in us. Um, and may that fruit stand as a testimony. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. First and foremost, thank you Thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you for your invitation into your family. Thank you for the good, good father that you are. Thank you that you never wear out. You never get tired. You never say, oh my gosh, her again. So Lord, we love you and we respond to you. And Jesus, any kind of thinking we have in our head from any kind of place that's outside, would you teach us how to, to reject that thinking and embrace your way. And just give us clarity, give us confirmation, give us encouragement and conviction. Just We just open ourselves up to you, Spirit, to do the things that you wanna do inside of us. Bear fruit in our marriages, bear fruit in our lives, bear fruit in our families. Strengthen us for the battle. Help us to see ourselves rightly, our spouse rightly, the gift of marriage and it is with the power and authority that I have as a co-heir with you that I ask that you release an anointing on this body with people who are hurting. And I ask that you would release an anointing on people that are married and on people who are single and on people who are questioning and on people who don't know you yet and on people who are watching us. Lord, we need you. We need your presence. We need your hand. We need your truth. We need to hunger for you. We want to be faithful to you. Give us, Lord Jesus, hope and strength and joy and peace. And I pray all these things in your holy and precious name.